Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and welcome to SITREP, where each week we analyse the key defence and security issues shaping the UK and the world. This week, is this the most significant shift in military thinking for generations? We must chart a direction of travel from an industrial age of platforms to an information age of systems. Warfare is increasingly about a competition between hiding and finding. We tease out what we've learned about the integrated operating concept set out by the Chief of Defence Staff this week with the Defence Editor of The Times, Lucy Fisher, and BFBS Defence Analyst, Christopher Lee. What is the best way to improve NHS services for serving armed forces families and veterans? We hear about a new survey designed to assess what's needed. So the main thing is that it's part of an overall strategy to make sure we listen to and hear what the views of veterans and families are. We speak to a former naval commander about the carrier strike group due to take part in a large-scale NATO exercise this weekend. And we hear about how a soldier who's living with a debilitating illness is attempting to pursue his dream of a musical career. But first, it's still being written, but week by week we're getting more glimpses of the direction the government's integrated review might take the UK's armed forces over the next few years. The latest comes from the UK's top military officer, who says the forces will have to give up some industrial age capabilities so they can compete on the new battlefields of space and cyber. Chief of the Defence Staff, General Sinek Carter, was speaking at the launch of a new integrated operating concept, billed as the most significant shift in military thinking in generations. Well, James Hurst was listening to the speech. We have long been primed to expect this integrative review to be radical, a big shake-up. And once again, General Sinek Carter painted a picture of a very different world in which the forces are already having to operate, one where political warfare is carried out by the UK's rivals, where digital authoritarianism undermines Western democracy, and one where war itself is an old-fashioned concept among our adversaries. Their goal is to win without going to war to achieve their objectives by breaking our willpower, using attacks below the threshold that would prompt a warfighting response. This so-called grey zone threat is not a new concept, but dealing with it is perhaps the key question for this integrated review. The Chief of the Defence Staff made clear the answers will require different thinking. First, a new distinction between warfighting and continuous operating. Second, integrating land, sea and air with new cyber and space domains. And third, we have to modernise. We must chart a direction of travel from an industrial age of platforms to an information age of systems. Warfare is increasingly about a competition between hiding and finding. It will be enabled at every level by a digital backbone into which all sensors, effectors and deciders will be plugged. This means that some industrial age capabilities will increasingly have to meet their sunset to create the space for capabilities needed for sunrise. The trick is how you find a path through the night. But that is talk that worries some people. Peter Roberts, Director of Military Sciences at the Royal United Services Institute, believes cutting back on conventional hard power to pay for new digital capabilities is a huge gamble. Now, that's not to say that cyber and space will not be important at the moment, equally as data. But the point is, a bit like the arrival of air power, they don't substitute the need for 
uh, conventional forces in the three traditional domains. They add to them, just like the arrival of aircraft uh, in the 1900s didn't mean the end of an army and navy. It's an addition, not a replacement for. In Whitehall, that might be seen as having your cake and eating it, something that defence cannot afford without significant new money that just isn't there at the moment. And the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, would rather people didn't see the review in these terms at all. The problem with these reviews is they often boil down to numbers games and discussions about you know equipment bingo, about who's going to buy what, what are we going to cut. And often forget to realise that our main task is to meet the threat. But also, just as important at the end of this review, will be how we will conduct future warfare. How will we conduct uh, the, 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 the process of challenging both the competition and our adversaries? And to do that, the Chief of Defence Staff insists there has to be change. We will have to take risk, accept some failure, and place emphasis on experimentation by allocating resources, force structure, training and exercise activity to stimulate innovation in all lines of development. But what risks will be taken? Which industrial age capabilities face being given up for a digital future? Those answers are still to be given. However, the integrated review, which is expected to give them, is promised before the end of the year. James Hurst there. Well, joining me now is Lucy Fisher, Defence Editor of The Times, and our Defence Analyst, Christopher Lee. Uh, Lucy, do you think it's the most significant shift in military thinking in generations? I do think it's an incredibly significant shift um, for two reasons, both for traditional and non-traditional warfare. Um, I think in the former, uh, General Snick Carter has made clear that we will see the UK armed forces increasingly move away from expensive crude platforms uh, and instead move to um, cheaper uh, weapons technologies and uncrewed capabilities. And secondly, in the non-traditional sphere, he's made absolutely clear that from now on, the British military is going to have to compete with our adversaries in the sub-threshold uh, of, of traditional warfare. I think we've seen a lot in recent years um, around the likes of um, Russia and China investing in capabilities that don't meet that traditional um, bar to be counted as war. Uh, and the UK has tended to overlook that. No longer, uh, General Sinek has said, uh, we need to forge ahead to be competitive in that space to deter war from um, erupting and to stop the kind of fait accompli missions we've seen the likes of Russia achieve, for example, in annexing Crimea illegally in 2014. And Christopher, what did you make of the central idea that old distinctions between peace and war, between foreign and domestic and between state and non-state are increasingly out of date? I think it's the uncertainty of where you go when you do start to change some of the policies introduced by, for example, uh, cyber warfare, a relatively new, uh, a new technology in, in warfare. What the, the main theme is, you now sit and watch military power enforcing ideas in certain areas, for example, the Chinese in the South China Sea. And when it's done, you say, well, that's the new, that's the new status in the world mm. of where the power is. And I think that is what uh, Nick Carter, uh, General Nick Carter, is really laying the foundations for now. And Lucy, was there any clue in the speech as to what are the specific so-called, as he called it, sunset capabilities that would need to be wound down to make way for the new sunrise ones? Well, he, he didn't name names, but I think that um, certainly there will be many eyebrows cocked in the Royal Navy um, about his criticism 
of expensive crude platforms that he predicted in the near future could be taken out by um, self-coordinating swarms of munitions, um, perhaps uh, ballistic, perhaps hypersonic. And for me, that really rang bells of something that was already familiar to me in a blog post from Dominic Cummings, the Prime Minister's chief aide, um, last year when he wrote something very similar about the ability for teenagers with drones to sink the aircraft carriers. So the matching up of those sentiments, I think, will have uh, the Royal Navy worried about the, the uh, utility of the carriers in the decades ahead. Mm. That's quite a thought, isn't it? Christopher, how will this new operating concept change what soldiers, for example, actually do? I mean, if, if they're being asked to complete, compete below the threshold of war? Yes, but two, I mean, two, two days ago, you had the chief of the general staff, the head of the army, actually saying, uh, I hope the Navy is going to find places, especially in the Far East, when they deploy uh, the Elizabeth, uh, for soldiers uh, who can go in those big ships in that space and be deployed, uh, deployed ashore on exercise, for example. In other words, you've got the army on one hand saying, uh, we've got to work with the Navy because that is the big platform. That can be the place where we can actually say, that's ours when we want to go to the Far East to take part in a, in a joint uh, exercise with the Japanese and, uh, and the Americans. I think it's a long way to go in this debate yet. Yeah, in that light, you, know, you say it's a long way to go. Lucy, what, what do you think of the timing of this speech a month or so before we expect the Integrated Defence and Security Review to be published? C can we assume it is a reflection of what it might conclude? Well, um, I'm actually not convinced we will see the, um, the Integrated Review uh, as soon as the end of November. Um, I know Sir Stephen Lovegrove, the Permanent Secretary of the Ministry of Defence, this week told MPs it was on track uh, for that timetable. But if we see the comprehensive spending review, which of course is what this integrated review is coming alongside and based on, if we see that spending re review reduced in scope from a three-year settlement to just a one-year financial settlement, there isn't really the financial certainty there um, for the government to pin an, a whole new foreign defence and security policy on. So, um, so I think it's unsurprising we're seeing a lot of speculation that the, the integrated review might yet be delayed. Um, uh, obviously, that said, you know, we, we are sort of months into it now. Um, I think obviously what uh, General Sinek Carter has said will be um, reflective of the government thinking. I don't think he would be out on a limb, particularly, um, you know, name checking uh, adversaries like China and, and, and Russia without firm uh, political support behind him. And Christopher, the central idea of the integrated operating concept, he said, is to integrate across all five operational domains, space, cyber, maritime, air and land. How would that change the way defence is organised compared to how it is now? I don't think you change it uh, because you've got to wait for something else that's happening at the moment. And that is government is trying to decide what its foreign policy is. And after all, defence is largely or largely sort of there to guarantee that foreign policy. Uh, something that Peter, um, Peter Roberts at uh, the RUSI said, uh, he said cyber and space, which everybody's thinking about now, the so-called new technology, um, is a bit like when the introduction of air power uh, in the early 1900s, it didn't change what we had to do. It simply changed or influenced the way we did it. And I think that's what we're in now. We've got new technologies, we've got new, new, new concepts, but it's not going to change what we have to do. 
it's going to change how we do it or, or what influences there are. Christopher, stay with us. Lucy Fisher from The Times, thank you very much for your time. The NHS say they're listening to armed forces families as they launch an online questionnaire and hold a series of virtual events to find out how they can improve care and support. Isa Gill is the wife of a serving army officer whose teenage son has a diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome, a form of autism. He has trouble with all kinds of things like anxiety and sleeplessness. The primary problem with moving um, around with the forces is that we you have to start again every time you move. In my son's case, he totally hates being talked about or talking about himself. So when he has to sit there and recap everything that's been going on, he totally hates it. Well, Dr. Jonathan Leach, who's served 25 years in the military, is NHS England's medical director for military and veterans health and a GP in Bromsgrove. So the main thing um, is that it's part of an overall strategy to make sure we listen to and hear uh, what the views of uh, veterans and uh, families are. So we've done a lot of work in terms of trying to improve, um, you know, services for veterans across NHS in England over the last few years. And this is part and parcel of that overall journey. We've got uh, uh, surveys and uh, other, other ways of actually trying to essentially capture what the views of veterans and veteran families are so that actually we can see what we can do to improve matters. Um, you say we, we, we've improved things considerably over the last four or five years. You know, we now have much better uh, veterans mental health service in England. Um, we've had about 11,000 referrals into the uh, referrals for the transition intervention liaison service. We've now also had about a thousand through into the complex treatment service. And then in addition, we're in the process of commissioning other services called the high impact service high intensity service so that actually we can actually deal with those uh, veterans who actually have the most uh, uh, significant problems, particularly around mental health. So it's part and parcel of an overall direction of travel. So we're talking about veterans, individuals and their families, but veterans specifically. Yes. So um, if I was still serving, so if I was still serving on Salisbury Plain or in Catterick or wherever, then it's the Ministry of Defence Defence Medical Services that's responsible for primary care, your GP services. What happens, though, is that if, for example, uh, somebody became unwell and needed hospital care, they would go to an NHS hospital. And that's where we come in, in terms of the current serving personnel. In terms of veterans, the bulk is actually provided by normal NHS services. And what we've been doing is, in effect, adding to those where we think and we know that specific services for military veterans, particularly around culture, particularly around access, particularly around language, would be particularly of value. And that specifically, for example, is around mental health. It's also around some services around prosthetics, if unfortunately somebody's lost a limb. And also we've been trying to improve the general NHS as a whole in terms of its overall understanding of the military and veteran community because there are differences. And what do you think are the biggest issues? So um, in terms of mental health, um, there's a lot talked about PTSD. That's obviously very important. Um, we know that, that the overall numbers are generally just slightly higher than the NHS. We also know that those who've uh, been in war fighting roles, that's significantly higher. So obviously the PTSD is really important. But actually, it's a broader issue in terms of particularly around alcohol, um, depression and, and um, anxiety are probably a much greater number of problems that people have 
rather than PTSD. But of course, it's in the context that the vast majority of veterans are absolutely fine. You know, I, I transitioned, took me a year, and I will be the first to say it took me a year to settle. Okay. Um, and I had a medical degree, I had a job and things like this. So I can understand how it can be difficult for some people. But the issue is that, um, you know, for those who need specific help, though, that's what we've been trying to uh, make sure that we provide better services. And in terms of um, the GP surgeries, how do you think that can be improved so that veterans get uh, more access, better access and, and, and sort of specific access to the, their particular needs? What we've been trying to do is, is trying to raise the profile by having a network of GP surgeries. Um, it's initially across England. We've got about 800 at the moment, which is there are about 7000 surgeries in England. Just to put that in perspective. And what they do is it's veteran accredited. So my surgery, for example, in Bromsgrove, um, we say to patients, it's their choice who you register with. That's exactly the same. But we say that, you know, we, we've got this specific skill, particularly because I'm there. And actually my colleagues, my NHS colleagues have now have much more knowledge and understanding about the military than they had before. So when somebody registers, we ask whether or not they've served, we code it. And then they have somebody like me who's, a, who's the clinical lead. And so we've been pushing this with the, uh, with the NHS. It's voluntary by GP surgeries. And the feedback we've had, and say we've got 800, which actually is a huge number. Um, it paused during the first phase of COVID, but now we're going to push ahead now. Um, but we, you know, it's a huge um, initiative to try and improve the knowledge and understanding within NHS general practice of the needs of service personnel, their families, and also veterans. That was Dr Jonathan Leach. Now, the MOD says it's confident HMS Queen Elizabeth will be operationally ready by the end of the year. Officials have been questioned by MPs about delays in the carrier programme and how many F-35 jets they'll eventually carry. She's due to take part in a large NATO exercise from this weekend off the coast of Scotland. Simon Newton reports. The Royal Navy's carriers cost £6.4 billion and appearing before the Commons Public Accounts Committee, MOD officials told MPs the programme was now on time and on budget. But Labour member Nick Smith was sceptical. With HMS Queen Elizabeth carrying scores of US Marine Corps jets, he asked... Isn't the truth that we've over-promised and underbought? No, said Air Marshal Richard Knighton. By the time we get to full operating capability for carrier strike, which is the end of 2023, then we'll have sufficient aircraft and assets to be able to operate up to 24 aircraft on the carrier at, at a time. The committee heard the Crow's Nest airborne radar system used to protect the carriers is 18 months behind schedule and three supply ships due in 2020 won't be ready now until the end of the decade. So with the integrated defence review looming, were the carriers the best use of MOD money? Sir Stephen Lovegrove, its most senior civil servant, said they were. But it is also a capability which is uh, capable of projecting Britain's power in the world. It is a very, very capable piece of equipment. So I have no doubt that it will be value for money. HMS Queen Elizabeth embarks on her maiden operational deployment in the new year. MOD officials reassuring MPs she will be ready. Well, Tom Sharp is a former naval commander who served for 27 years. I asked him what the Navy would be testing during the NATO joint exercise. We're testing uh, everything from, from the, the ship itself, uh, HMS Queen Elizabeth, to the aircraft embarked in her, be that fixed wing or rotary, and then the task group supporting that. Obviously, the ship can't work in isolation, so she'll have a, 
a range of support capabilities with her from a, a range of different countries. And all of this will be tested in what the, what the Navy tends to call tier two training. So it's much less procedural than the, than the training that happens in Plymouth. And it will really test the task group, command and control organization, and all the elements of equipment and logistic support within it. How critical is it that the US and UK F-35s are working together on this exercise? It's really critical for, for both countries. Both countries are learning how to operate the F-35 from at sea. So it's a really, really good example of, of, of joint cooperation between the two countries. Critics have said that it's because we don't have enough jets. Well, obviously, that's, that's true at the moment. But this was always the, the curve. Um, to getting the full amount of jets. I mean, what is the full amount of jets is a, is a whole other subject. But for now, uh, where both countries are in terms of operating the F-35 at sea, uh, this is a, uh, really important to, to both the Royal Navy and the, and the US Marines and the US Navy that we're able to integrate in this way. It's a really encouraging piece of uh, bilateral cooperation. And we heard in Simon's report about delays in airborne radar systems and the three supply ships. What impact will that have? It's very significant. Uh, I would say in, in priority order. I mean, the ships are working well. Let's start with that. The ship itself is functioning very, very well. And that's often overlooked when people start nitpicking at the, at the various um, cap supporting capabilities. The ships are, are good. However, a ship without logistics is is going to be always going to be vulnerable, if not ineffective. So the fleet, uh, the, the 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 solid support ships are are fundamental to the ongoing autonomous operations of the QE class carrier. And if that isn't resolved, um, then the ships will be well, they'll be able to operate, but they'll they'll have severe limitations placed on them right from the start. And and the same with airborne early warning. Uh, and the same with air-to-air -air refueling. I, and I've, I've put them in that order deliberately, actually, because both of those last two can be provided by, by other people. Uh, um, certainly the air-to-air -air refueling can be provided by the RAF, for example, and their Voyager aircraft uh, extremely well. So back to the um, fleet sol solid support ships, it's really, really important that they are, that they are uh, contractors agreed quickly on those and that they come online as fast as possible. Otherwise, HMS Queen Elizabeth will forever be operating at slightly below par. And in that light, do you believe the carriers are good value for money at £6.4 billion? I do, actually. I really do. Um, that's, for, that's for two of them through, through life. You compare that to 13 plus billion for a single Gerald R. Ford class carrier, then they really are good value for money. And I think the way they generate sorties, the way they're operating at sea, the fact that they're not nuclear, I mean, that is a, it sounds like a disadvantage, but actually in so many ways, it's a huge advantage. What they need to take care of is that we don't, uh, that everybody doesn't get sucked into those two platforms. Like I say, the whole package has to be there for them to operate at maximum capability. Uh, and there is a risk to other elements of the Navy, in my view, uh, as, as people get seduced to the big shiny light that is the carrier, that other elements will be, uh, will be ignored. And what are your hopes for the Integrated Defence and Security Review in terms of naval power? I would like to see, I mean, all the discussion at the moment is about AI and autonomy and the grey zone. Uh, and I, I get that. But um, there will always come a time for equipment and people. I mean, that's just the history of warfare. And, and the, the army are, are, are playing this um, drum very loudly this week. Uh, AI is often used as an excuse to save money, in my view, or sorry, tech solutions are often used as, as an excuse to save money. 
uh, and they become quite hard to counter argue because by arguing for large platforms, you can look uh, like a, a bit sort of regressive in your in your views. So I want something that's led by the threat. The Secretary of State has promised it will be, but then they've all said that every time and then properly resourced and, and not one that uses both of those to just mask more cuts. But with the economy in, in the state it's in, uh, I'm nervous about it. That was former Naval Commander Tom Sharp. Well, with me still is Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, what, what will the Navy be trying to test during this joint exercise? Everything that connects up, um, and that's working with 17 other navies and 17 different countries and 17 different sort of types of vessels, including subsurface. And you have to test the connections. When you want to speak to somebody, can you speak to them? When you want to go into an operation, can you follow a pattern? And what happens if you take something out of that pattern? Uh, how do you all link up again? Uh, that's the simplest way of, uh, of putting it. But it's not so much can an F-35 land on the deck of, uh, of the Elizabeth. We know they can. We can know they can do it rather well. What, what Tom Sharp was talking about, if you take one of those carriers out, uh, you know the whole thing's off. But if you take one of the supply ships out, you can really foul up the whole operational dignity of, of that ship as well. Thank you, Christopher. And just to add, marine rescuers are trying to move on a group of whales in a Scottish loch ahead of this exercise. There are concerns that sonar from warships could distress the northern bottlenose whales in Gerloch in Argyll. And finally, a soldier living with a debilitating illness is attempting to overcome adversity and pursue his dream of a musical career. Lance Corporal Liam Wakefield has teamed up with South Coast musicians Coolstar to release the single I Keep Walking. Tim Cooper's been to hear Liam's story. Keep on moving on From town to town The road's my only home I'm Liam Wakefield. I've been in the army for 10 years now. Um, I was diagnosed with pseudothansoma elasticum uh, in 2018 and I'll be medically discharged this coming December. Um, I had the opportunity to go through music and use music as therapy and with that I'm now heading off to start a career in music. Keep on moving on From town to town I'm with Liam at the studios in Gosport where he recorded this track. Cool Star featuring Liam Wakefield, I Keep Walking is what it's called. And Liam explained how music is helping him with his debilitating illness. It's a, a rare disease, um, genetic, and uh, it affects the uh, connective tissues, um, and uh, so it's not something that can be cured, and it's uh, something that's going to get worse as time goes on, but affected me through my eyes um, and through my joints, and uh, so I've lost a fair amount of sight in my left eye, um, and uh, the pain that comes with that, the chronic illness, uh, it's just, yeah, it's just an abundance and an amalgamation of lots of different disorders which just seem to be getting worse and worse. Walking, walking, Gethin Jones is composer and co-producer of the track. Liam's vocals are very difficult to describe. I mean, it's it's reminiscent of some voices, but you can't actually nail it down to anything, really. There's a bit of Tom Petty there, there's a bit of Bob Dylan, but most of all, there's Liam Wakefield, I guess. 
It's a different sound to perhaps what I do for my own music um, and my personal sort of releases. And I think that, that that's even better to sort of have that versatility and be able to try something different and to be able to sort of get on with the people that are doing it so well. Um, and it's we've done three songs now together, which yet to come out. So this first one is, is nice because it's the start of a journey. When I look around. Well, we've done quite a bit of auditioning over the years here for, for songs that I come up with. Sometimes you have to deliberate over it for a little while, but when we heard Liam's voice uh, singing the song, it was instantaneous. We knew straight away that he was right for the song and was going to give a really good performance. I think I've experienced the best care that I could have. And I'm just so grateful that I was in the army when diagnosed with this disease because had, had I not, I wouldn't have had the attention and the support, which has just been phenomenal. And ongoing as well, the army could have easily sort of said yes as an issue and then moved me on to, to civilian life. But they didn't, they've kept me around and, and really sort of worked with me as well. That was Lance Corporal Liam Wakefield there. And that's it from me, Kate Chabot, and from Christopher Lee. Thanks to all of our guests. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And while you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode in future at bfbs.com slash SITREP. For now, though, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.